The early church father, Jerome, once wrote that when he read the writings of the Apostle Paul, he could hear thunder. And nowhere else in all of Paul's letters are those peals of thunder louder, nor are the the flashes of lightning brighter than in his letter to the Galatians. This is not a tame letter. It is an intense, forceful viral defense of the central truth of the Christian faith, which is this, that God justifies sinners by His grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. About this letter, John Piper writes, quote, you cannot read the first ten verses without feeling that something utterly important is at stake. You cannot read Galatians and think, well, this is an interesting piece of religious reflection any more than you can examine a live coal with your bare hands. And I think that a live coal is the perfect metaphor for the gospel which this letter proclaims so loudly and so clearly. Paul's defense of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is found in these chapters, helped to spark the Protestant Reformation. It was while studying for his lectures in Galatians and his lectures in Romans that Martin Luther saw in Paul's Judaizing opponents who were assaulting the Galatian churches with this false gospel of a works righteousness. He saw in Paul's opponents the very same legalism, the very same works righteousness, the very same false gospel that was being taught by the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century and is still taught today. And as Luther began to preach this glowing coal of justification, sola fide, by faith alone, its sparks fell on others who in turn took the fire of the gospel and with it burned all of Europe. And I long for the very same thing to happen here in our midst in this church and and outside of this church, in the community. My desire is that over the course of the next four months, as we break open this letter, all six chapters, my goal is to take from the furnace of Galatians a glowing coal each and every week and deliver it by the power of the Holy Spirit into your very heart. That's what I'm praying for. And my prayer is that the glowing embers would burn away from our hearts every last vestige of legalism, of Pharisaism, of a man-centered, work-based religion which still clings in the recesses of our souls. I want nothing more than through this study and by the power of the Spirit who inspired it to kindle within our souls a blazing flame of a grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, God-centered, God-glorifying gospel that like the apostles did 2,000 years ago, we may in turn set ablaze all of Nixon and even the very nations of the world. That's what I want. And I want you to pray with me as we go through Galatians for that very thing. Now before we dive into the text itself, what I want to do this morning, I want to take just a few moments, actually about half of our message, and I want to introduce the whole series. I want to give us some background as to why we're in Galatians and what's going on in the context in which this letter was written. So I'm going to introduce the 
the series by answering those two questions that you'll see at the, at the top of your bulletin on the back side of it. Two questions. Why Galatians and why now? In other words, of all of the places I could begin my preaching ministry here at First Baptist Nixa, why have I chosen under the direction of the Holy Spirit, I believe, to begin in Galatians and not elsewhere? Well, I have three primary reasons that I put down on your bulletins. Reason number one is this. First Baptist Church Nixa, we need a deep, theologically robust, God-centered gospel DNA. And I'm going to break that apart here in just a moment. We need a deep, theologically robust, God-centered gospel DNA. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul addresses the single most pressing, most vital issue we could ever face, which is the issue of how a sinner is made right with God. Is there anything more important to which we could give our attention? How are sinners made right in the sight of a just and holy God. And in these pages, Paul makes it abundantly clear that there is one and only one right answer to that question. There is only one gospel, and everything else is no gospel at all and has no power to save. As we're going to see next week, come back. The devil is quite literally in the details of the gospel. The men who had crept into the Galatian churches after Paul's departure, the men against whom Paul rails throughout this letter, he accuses of preaching a false gospel, a different gospel. And I want you to know that these men were men who taught that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. They were men who taught that Jesus died upon the cross and was raised again on the third day. They even taught that it was necessary to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. If they hadn't taught these essential truths, it's hard to understand how they could have gained a foothold in the churches of Galatia. And yet, Paul says, Galatians 2.4, these men are false brethren who were accursed of God. Galatians 1, 8, and 9. Literally, he says, these men are damned. And so is their teaching. Why? Fundamentally, because they added their own righteousness to the all-sufficient righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. They added their own works to the all-sufficient works of Christ. They taught a Jesus plus salvation. And one truth that Paul is at pains to make absolutely clear in Galatians is that if I add even an ounce of my own righteousness to the all-sufficient righteousness of Christ as the basis of my acceptance before God, then I have rendered the cross of Christ to be of none effect, and I'm still under the curse of God's wrath. You stick with me and see if that's not what he says. A Jesus plus gospel is really no gospel at all. It has no power to save. The only gospel there is, the only gospel that saves is the gospel which says that sinners are made right with God by his free and sovereign grace alone because of the blood, the cross, and the righteousness of Christ alone, the gift of which is received by faith and by faith alone. Listen to me, beloved. There are many people who believe. And there are many 
churches who teach, who preach a gospel of grace, faith, and Christ. But the devil's in the details. It's the alones of the gospel that make it good news. It's the alones of the gospel that mark the difference between different gospels, no gospels, and the one true gospel, the only gospel that saves. It's not enough to have a gospel of grace, faith, and Christ. Paul's gospel, Jesus' gospel, is a gospel of grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. That's the gospel that redeems sinners. And I chose carefully every word of this first sentence. First Baptist Nixon needs a deep, theologically robust, God-centered gospel DNA. Because it represents the desire of my heart. I desire that First Baptist Nixon would be a people who go deep into the details of the gospel, that we would be a people who cherish words like atonement and justification and propitiation and imputed righteousness and sovereign grace, not because we like to impress people with our weighty theological vocabulary. Those words are very, very impressive, are they not? No, that's not why we cherish those words. We cherish those words because we love and cherish the truths, the biblical truths that they represent. We use biblical words to define biblical concepts. I desire that First Baptist Church of Nixa would be a people who know and understand and cherish the truth that our salvation begins and ends with God. We have a God-centered gospel proclaiming a salvation designed by the Father, accomplished by the Son, applied by the Spirit to the glory of our great triune God. So my prayer is that the heartbeat of this church would beat to that gospel rhythm of grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and glory to God alone. And Galatians is the perfect place to do just that. Reason number two, why Galatians, why now? We need a theological foundation for an experience of our freedom in Christ. In my experience, most, most Christians have no idea what Paul means when he says in Galatians 5.1 that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. That just blows our mind. Most Christians walk through this life as if they were still in bondage to the law, as if their standing before God was still dependent upon their own works and their own obedience and their own righteousness. Therefore, when they stumble and they fall into sin, they think about how terribly angry God must be with them. And when they neglect their morning Bible reading or they forget to pray, they think about how terribly disappointed God must be in them. But Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 through 6, that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law that we might receive the adoption as not slaves but sons and because you are sons God has sent forth his spirit into our hearts crying Abba Father 
Christ Jesus died that our status before God would be changed. No longer slaves to his law, but sons and heirs of his kingdom. Yet most Christians relate to God still as a slave to a master and not as a son to a father. But the gospel proclaimed by Paul, explicated beautifully in the book of Galatians, particularly chapter 4, is a gospel of freedom and a gospel of sonship and a gospel of pure and unmitigated joy. And the wonder of God's grace is this. We'll find this to be true in Galatians 5. When I know and understand that I don't have to obey God in order to get God to love me, I end up obeying him more because I can render to him an obedience that a slave never could. Slaves only obey out of a fear of punishment or a hope of reward, but sons obey out of love and faith and joy. I want us to be a free people. So we're starting in Galatians. Number three. First Baptist Church of Nixon needs to live in the power of the Spirit. The Christian walk is not a natural walk. It's a supernatural walk. The Christian life is not trudged through by sheer moral effort, but it is walked in by the power of the Spirit who raised us from death to life, the power of the Spirit who dwells within us and is willing and working in us for God's good pleasure. So we read in Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. In 5.18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And in 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Paul makes it crystal clear that the only way to obey God is by the Spirit of God. And we need to know what this means. And we need to experience it deeply in our own lives and in the lives of this church. We need to be people who are producing the fruit of the Spirit, not by effort, but by the grace of God. So that when other people see us, they see a people of love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And Galatians is the perfect place to start. To learn what it means to walk by the Spirit. I'm going to quote from John Piper one last time. He summarizes the message of Galatians in this way. Listen closely. He says, quote, Galatians exalts these two things. The cross of Christ as the only way a person can get right with God. And the Spirit of Christ as the only way a person can obey God. And anything that diminishes the beauty and all-sufficiency of what happened on the cross is anathema to Paul. And anything that puts our willing or running where the Holy Spirit belongs is witchery to Paul. And the reason we sense a kind of compassionate rage running underneath this letter is that someone had bewitched the Galatians to put themselves where the Spirit belonged and the works of the law where faith in the cross belonged, end quote. And so my invitation to you is to take this journey with us. It's going to take about three, maybe four months. But on the other end of this, my prayer is that we would be a people who depend solely upon the cross of Christ for our salvation and solely upon the Spirit of Christ for our sanctification. Will you journey there with me? Amen. The second section of your outline contains this question then. So what is Galatians? When you open up 
the book of Galatians, you will come to find that it's not a book at all. It's actually a letter. And like any letter, it cannot be understood without knowing who wrote it, to whom it was written, and the context in which it was written. The author and the audience are established for us right from the outset in verses 1 and 2. The context, we're going to have to turn back to Acts chapters 13 and 14 in order to establish. But let's talk authorship and audience first. The authorship is established in verse 1 and in verse 2. Read there with me. Paul, an apostle not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me. Now I'm going to save the story of Paul's conversion for next week or a few weeks from now when we cover the latter half of chapter 1 and Paul makes reference to it himself. What you need to know this morning is that all of Galatians was written by Paul who was appointed an apostle by God the Father and by the risen Lord Jesus and that he wrote it in connection with and in unity with all of the brethren who were gathered together at the church in Antioch which is most likely the locale from which Galatians was written. That it was written sometime in the years 49 to 50 AD, and if you're looking to place it into the timeline of the book of Acts, it was written probably between Acts 14 and Acts 15. So after the events of Paul's first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, and before they traveled to to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council to deal with this very question in Acts 15, The audience of the letter is established at the end of verse 2. To the churches of Galatia. Now, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you may want to flip there maybe this afternoon. Or if you have in your mind a picture of the Mediterranean world, right there at the top of the the Mediterranean coast is Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And there's some debate among scholars and among commentators as to whether Paul was writing to the churches of northern Galatia or to the churches of southern Galatia. And and which one to whom he wrote affects both the date of the writing and the the context in which it was written. I'm going to spare you all of the details of that debate. I'm just going to tell you that I think the most convincing theory is the southern Galatian theory. Which means that Paul wrote this letter to some churches that we know some things about from the book of Acts. He wrote this letter to the churches of Pisidian Antioch, Acts 13. Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, Acts 14. And if that southern Galatian theory proves right, then we also know the historical context of the letter, which I would suggest that you read for yourself maybe this week in the chapters of Acts 13 and 14. If you want to know what had happened before Paul sat down and penned this letter and sent it back to the churches of Galatia. So from Acts 13 and 14 and from the letter to the Galatians itself, we can derive a fairly accurate picture of the context of this letter. So let me just give it to you in brief. At the beginning of Acts 13, the church of Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, a journey which took them first on a, on a, a boat to this island of Cyprus and then on a boat also from then on to Perga in Pamphylia on the Mediterranean coast and then traveling up north into the regions of Galatia where at the beginning of Acts 13 or in about eight verses down in Acts 13, they begin to minister in the cities of Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra 
and Derby carrying us to the end of Acts 14. In every place that they went, I really challenge you to read that this week, Acts 13 and 14. In every place that they went, they preached the gospel boldly. They preached it openly, first to the Jews in their synagogues, and then to the Gentiles in their marketplaces. And in every place that they went, masses of both Jews and Gentiles were converted to faith in the gospel. But in every place they went, they also encountered fierce opposition at the hands of unbelieving Jews who rejected Paul's Messiah and rejected Paul's message. In Lystra, these Jews even persuaded the crowds to have Paul stoned and left for dead. A reference Paul probably makes in Galatians 6.17 when he says, Let no one disturb me. I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. I've suffered for the sake of the gospel. So don't tell me that I don't have something at stake in this. Evidently, then, after Paul left Galatia to return to Antioch, certain men came in after him retracing his steps, infiltrating the newly formed Galatian churches and contradicting the gospel which he had preached. And we can ascertain from what Paul writes in this letter that these men were Jews who had embraced Jesus as the Messiah but who confused the new covenant with the old covenant and therefore had confused the gospel itself. We're going to deal with their heresy in more detail in the weeks to come but for right now I just want to summarize for you very briefly what their message was. These men came into these primarily Gentile churches of Galatia and told them, you know what, it's great that you believed in Jesus, that's good. We commend you for that. But in order to become right with God, in order to become a part of the people of God, you need to be circumcised and come underneath the law of God. In short, these Judaizers, as they came to be known, taught that the Gentile converts needed to become Jews before they could become Christians. And they accused Paul of being a false apostle who only preached half the truth. But Paul is clear from the outset of this message These men are not merely disputing some peripheral point of secondary doctrine. They are perverting the very gospel of our salvation. And he is clear when he writes to the Galatians. He says, if you abandon me and the gospel that I preach, you are doing nothing less than abandoning Jesus Christ and your only hope of salvation. What is at stake in the churches of Galatia? What is at stake in this letter is nothing less than the very salvation of their and our souls. Because any gospel that adds human works, human merit, human righteousness to the work of Christ, the cross of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ, Paul says, is no gospel at all. So with that background in mind, I'd like to spend the remainder of our time this morning looking at the first five verses which form the introduction to this letter. From this introduction, I want to point out to you three truths which are going to continue to have massive implications for us as we move forward through our study of this letter over the next three or four months. Truth number one that I want to point out to you is this. It relates to the authority of Paul as an apostle of Christ and the authority of his message as the very words of Christ. 
Look again with me in verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me. The authority of Paul as God's ordained messenger and the authority of his words as God's ordained message were under fierce attack in the churches of Galatia. And so Paul bursts right out of the gate swinging, seeking to establish the divine authority of his apostolic ministry and therefore, in consequence of, the divine authority of his apostolic message. In the New Testament, the word apostle is used in two different ways. It is used in the one hand in a broad and general sense, and it's used in the other hand in a narrow and restricted sense. In the broad sense, the word apostle simply means a messenger or an emissary or a representative who is entrusted with a message or a duty. The Greek word literally means one who is sent. And it's in this broad sense that Paul in Philippians 2.25 refers to Epaphroditus as the Philippians apostle who was sent out to minister to his need. It was used in a broad sense. It's also in this broad sense that Paul refers to Andronicus and Junius in Romans 16.7 as apostles. Evidently there was a large group, a broad group of ministers in the early church who were known as apostles. And, and Paul says, you know, Andronicus and Junius, Romans 16.7, they are excellent among the apostles. And I think that we can derive an implication from Galatians 2.12 and a couple of verses in Acts 15 that Paul's opponents who were coming behind him into the churches of Galatia probably referred to themselves as apostles sent out by the church at Jerusalem. But the New Testament most often uses the term apostle in its narrow and restrictive sense to refer to the twelve. Those who were called and commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Those who were entrusted with the leadership of the early church. And most importantly, those who were entrusted to speak the authoritative word of Christ. And it was this authoritative teaching of the apostles which forms the foundation of the church, says Paul in Ephesians 2.20. It is this apostolic faith which forms the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, says Jude in verse 3. And here in verse 1, Paul is clearly establishing himself as that kind of apostle. The apostle in the most narrow, the most restrictive sense of the word. He says, I was not merely sent out by man, nor through the agency of men. A church did not send me out, and therefore I do not carry with me merely human authority. I was chosen to be an apostle by God the Father before I was yet born. He's going to say a little later in Galatians 1. I was called and commissioned to be an apostle by the risen Lord Jesus himself. I was entrusted with this message that I preach, not from any man, but as a direct revelation from Jesus, he's going to say in verse 12. Therefore, the message that Paul preached, the words that he wrote, the words that we read this morning and over the next three or four months come to us, listen to me, with absolute divine authority they are not to be argued with 
They are not to be corrupted. They are not to be perverted. They are not to be twisted. They are not to be softened. And they must not be ignored. On the contrary, they are to be believed and they are to be obeyed as if they were the very words of Christ because that's exactly what they are. So when Paul says, for instance, that there is no other gospel than the gospel that he's going to relate to us in the book of Galatians, then we need to make sure that we believe him and that all who preach another gospel are under the curse of God. We need to make sure that we believe him. And we need to make sure that we believe and teach and watch carefully every gospel that comes in through the doors of this church. Because salvation is at stake. When Paul says that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, and that by the works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight, Galatians 2.16, we dare not think then that a man can possibly be set right with God through our own good works or our own obedience or our own righteousness, but we need to rest by faith in the works and the obedience and the righteousness of Christ alone. This gospel is not too good to be true. It's the gospel that must be received and believed and rested in by faith. Let me take you to chapter 5. When, when Paul says in Galatians 5, 16 through 24 that those who live to gratify the sinful desires of their flesh and do not walk by the Spirit will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, that is not an empty threat. It means that if you live to gratify the desires of your flesh, you are headed nowhere else but hell. And we need to step back from that and say, that's true. And we need to conform our lives accordingly. Death and hell await those who sow to the flesh, says Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and with absolute divine authority. So as we begin our journey through Galatians, I call upon each and every one of you to receive these words as the very words of Christ. The promises that we find are the promises of him who cannot lie. The warnings that we find are the warnings of him who will not be mocked. This letter is not some ancient piece of literature like an artifact in a museum that we give some, a few moments attention to before we scuttle out to lunch. This is a powerful defense of the only gospel of our only Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven and hell, listen to me, beloved. There is no overstatement here. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. The fate of your very soul is at stake. You must believe the word of Christ handed down to us through the pen of his apostle. You must believe and believing be saved. Truth number two regards the nature of our rescue that is proclaimed in this gospel. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, precisely how God rescues his people is going to be the main point of his letter, and we're going to get into the details of that redemption over the weeks to come in chapters 2 and 3 and 4. Over the next four months, beloved, we're going to go deep into the details of our salvation. 
But in this introduction, Paul simply summarizes the gospel message in one brief verse. So before we gaze long into the magnificence of the glory of the gospel of Christ, let's just take a brief glimpse this morning at the beauty portrayed to us in just these few short words. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of a rescue. A rescue designed by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. The gospel is the story of the eternal triune God who created all things and created man. And as the pinnacle of his creation, he set man in the middle of his creation to rule and to govern over all things that he had made with love and righteousness and truth and thereby to reflect the glory of the creator himself. But man turned his back on his creator and fell into sin and thereby plunged all of the human race and indeed all of the cosmos into sin and death and under the curse and the wrath of God. This is why we find ourselves born into a world of iniquity, surrounded by a cursed creation that is marred by sin. And to our absolute horror, we find that this evil is not merely outside of us and around us, but is within us. We are a part of this present evil age, and we share in its curse, and we await its destruction. But God had a plan, forged in the eternal counsels of the Trinity, a plan to rescue his people and to redeem his creation from the curse of sin. But this redemption would come at a price. The law of God demanded that the penalty for sin, for death, the penalty of death for the sin of man, for the wages of sin is death, the soul that sins shall die. The law demanded that you and I and every other sinner should die for the rebellion that we have carried out against our sovereign king and creator. And so in order for the law of God to be upheld and in order for the righteousness of God to be vindicated and in order for the glory of God to be displayed, God the Father sent God the Son to die for the sins of his people. And God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, look there in verse 4, willingly came and gave himself up to suffering and to death and to agony in order to redeem the people whom he loves and to make atonement for each and every one of our sins. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, took all of our unrighteousness upon himself, bearing all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our guilt and all of our curse, and he died in our place, and thus justice was done. The price for sin was paid, and our redemption was secured. This is how God rescues sinners from this present evil age, through the curse bearing, wrath-absorbing, sin-atoning death of the Son of God who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He left His Father's throne above, so free, so infinite His grace, emptied Himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, and praise my God, it reaches me. That's the message of the gospel in part. 
Because then, having vindicated his own righteousness and having secured the redemption of his people through the death of his son, God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day and Christ then ascended to the right hand of God at which time he sent forth his Holy Spirit to apply this redemption to all for whom Christ died. And it was at the cross that Jesus paid the price of our release and purchased our redemption. And it is by the power of the Spirit that he comes to us through the proclamation of the gospel And he unlocks the chains of sin that kept us in bondage in this present evil age, shackled in the prison of our sin. And he leads us out into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And so Wesley goes on and he writes, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening what ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? That's the gospel. We are saved from the penalty of our sin through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And we are rescued from the power of our sin through the powerful work of the Spirit who raised us from death to life. Are you free Have you been rescued from this present evil age? Is your hope of salvation and everlasting life resting solid and secure only on the cross of Jesus? Are you walking in the freedom of the Spirit, enabled to obey and to love God, whereas before you couldn't, even if you had wanted to, which you didn't? Do you find within your heart a love and affection for God and a desire to obey Him and the ability to do so that you've never experienced before? That's what he's talking about through the power of the Spirit. When you die and stand before the tribunal of God's judgment and he asks you, why should I let you enter into the joys of heaven, wicked and vile and sin-filled though your life was, what are you going to say? Because if it's not grace and grace alone, faith and faith alone, Christ and Christ alone, you will not enter in. And you are still chained in the prison of this present evil age. And you will suffer the judgment and the wrath that is coming upon this world. And so this morning I command you in the name and in the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. To repent of your sins and to trust only in the cross of Jesus. Where the son of God who loves you. Gave himself up for you. By faith take all of your sin and guilt and shame and reckon them placed upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ and fully punished and fully atoned for in him. And by faith, take from Christ the righteousness which he offers you and wrap it around your shameful nakedness before God as a free gift of his grace and stand boldly and confidently in the judgment, both at one and the same time, forgiven of all of your sins and clothed in perfect righteousness and obedience of his Son. That's what you must do to get out of this present evil age and to have a place in the age to come. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. By faith, call upon his name, ask him to save you, and on the authority of Christ and his word, I promise you that whoever calls upon the name of Christ will be saved. You'll be forgiven, you'll be cleansed, you'll be free. So do it now. Now.
Take hold of the good news of the gospel and place all of your hope in Christ and receive freely of his grace. Because there is no other hope, there is no other salvation, and there is no other gospel. Truth number three relates to the goal of this redemption. Why does God do it like this? Why does God save sinners in the way that he does, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Why is Paul so emphatic in this letter that our works and our merit and our righteousness and our obedience have absolutely no place in our justification before God? Why does he hammer that point home time and time again? Why? Because he wants us to know that the goal of our redemption is the glory of our God and Father and of his Son, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. Paul is insistent that we add nothing to the cross of Christ, going so far as to say that if we seek to add anything to his cross, then Christ will be of no benefit to us. Why? Why does God design a one-way rescue? It's so that to him would be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God alone will be glorified in the salvation of sinners. God alone will be praised for the glory of his grace. And therefore, he has designed a salvation which is absolutely free from any grounds of human boasting. You cannot take credit for anything in this. You know why I did it in that way? Because he knows that with our sinful and prideful selves, if he left even an inch open in the crack of this door for us to take credit for, we take credit for the whole thing. You know why I'm saved and that person isn't? Because I'm smart enough to understand the gospel. You know why I'm saved and that person isn't? Because I'm humble enough to believe the gospel. You know why I'm saved and that person isn't? Because I'm bold enough to confess the gospel. No. Understanding, faith, confession, they come to us as free gifts of God's sovereign grace. Not even the faith which, with which we take hold of this salvation is ours. Free and sovereign grace. Therefore, when a person is captured by the truth of the gospel, all he can do is join with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6.14 and cry out, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. First Baptist Nixa, let's, let's be a people whose only hope is the righteousness of Christ and whose only boast is the cross of Christ and whose only aim is the glory of Christ. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Beloved, this is the gospel and there is no other. And it is by this gospel that you must be saved. Our God and our Father, your word promises that this gospel is powerful. It is powerful to raise the dead. It is powerful to save those who believe. It is powerful to knock out every prop of human pride that supports us up so that we would lean wholly upon the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you now, Glorify your son, glorify yourself by doing those three things. Raise the dead in our midst. Awaken the unbelieving to saving faith in Jesus Christ. 
rip off the shackles and the chains that hold them bound in the prison of their sin and set their hearts free to believe and to love and to obey. And Lord, I pray, I pray that the sweet air of freedom would blow through this place this morning. We have been rescued from the status of slaves. And we have been granted freely by His grace the status of sons. So Lord, I pray that You would enable this morning by Your grace all of Your children to relate to You as that. Children. Beloved of the Father. With a love that is unconditional and never-ending and completely independent of their own works. And I pray I pray that you would knock out every prop of human pride that seeks to hold us up. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. Lord, may those be the cries, the hymns on the lips of the faithful this morning. These things I pray, asking you to glorify yourself in their fulfillment. I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.